Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton, and I'm your host. The last time on the podcast, during episode number seven, we talked about the propaganda war that the North Vietnamese were waging against the United States. During this episode, we're going to pick up the story back in Hanoi in the prison they called the Plantation. Big changes were on the horizon for our POWs, and most of these changes can be traced back to three major events, which we'll discuss today. Before we start, however, I want to wish the Yankee Air Pirate a happy birthday. This episode was recorded just a couple of days before he turned 88 years strong. Happy birthday, Dad. I love you. This episode also includes a YouTube video link embedded in the description. The video shows my father and I recording part of this episode and also includes pictures of many of the important people and locations we discuss in this episode. It also includes the only known picture to exist of Major Bai of the North Vietnamese Army, who was the commander of all American POWs in Vietnam before he simply vanished in the spring of 1970. After you finish listening to the podcast, be sure to click on the details section under this podcast title and scroll down to the YouTube link. If you are listening to the podcast today on the Apple Podcast Player, just click it and play. Simple as that. If you're listening on another podcast player, you may have to copy and paste the link into YouTube. Now, hold on tight. We're heading back to Hanoi, where the Yankee Air Pirate was still fighting the good fight. doing today i'm doing just grand today thank you all right outstanding well we've we've got some really cool things to talk about today uh we are going to talk about some really big events that happened in late 1969 into 1970 and really through 1970 that changed the way pow's were being treated and changed the way that you all were, were being held prisoner so uh, ultimately, it led to the um, fourth Allied POW wing coming together, and we're going to talk about those events today. But first, uh, we got to get to the lightning round, as we always do, and we've got some emails that came in with some questions. And this week, we are going to take some questions from my good friend and my Naval Academy classmate, Bobby Wayman. And Bobby writes in uh, to you, and he wants to know, Dad, uh, have you ever been back to Vietnam since the war? Well, I really have not been back uh, to Vietnam. And the reason is that my sainted mother told me, you never go where you're not wanted. And they clearly did not want me on my last visit. Okay. So Bobby, Bobby's follow-up question is, do you have any desire to go back uh, to see what's left of the Hanoi Hilton. The only way I'd go back is to take the big one up the Red River and drop it right on Ho Chi Minh's tomb. Okay. <laughs> so that's a big no, I, I that, guess, That right? says no, yes. Okay. Um, la- last question from Bobby. Uh, Bobby also asked, um, he, he's been listening to all these podcasts and he's really interested. Um, if you saw Vegetable Vic today... Uh, this is the man uh, most responsible for the most brutal torture sessions. If you saw Vegetable Vic today, how would you react? Actually, Vegetable Vic, I would uh, greet him as one soldier to another, shake his hand, ask him how he was doing, and ask him a few questions about how he operated and who gave him the orders because he was just a junior enlisted guy doing his job as best he could. He took obviously took no pleasure in it. Now, some of the guys that told him, one guy we called Walleye, that if I ever met him and had a forty five, I'd blow his brains out. Okay, because he, he was the one that was really sadistic about it. He seemed to get off on it. Okay, gotcha. All right, um, 
Well, let's move right along because we've got one more question in the lightning round that I feel like we've got to cover today. And this one's from one of your granddaughters, Allison, from over in Hawaii. Um, Allison called me and she, she uh, really wants to know um, why some Americans felt that the United States should not be fighting the Vietnam War back in the 60s and 70s. That's not a bad question for a seaman in the Coast Guard. The, uh, there are as many reasons why people took a stand on the war as there are people. I think the fundamental issue is, did you regard communism as a threat to our country or not? That is what was the foundation of your policy and your policy towards an enemy. Now, if you found them to be an enemy, logic dictates that it's far better to fight them in their own front yard than to fight them on your yard. So I have no problem with going over Vietnam and helping them. I'd rather fight it over there than fight it on uh, the lawn of Hanford, Florida. Okay. Pardon me, Hanford, California. Yeah. Right church, wrong pew. Okay. Got you. Well, I mean, I think Allie's question is really good, and, and I think the answer is pretty deep and requires more time, and it's probably material for an entire uh, podcast episode at some point in the future. That was a very difficult, complex time with a lot of different uh, thoughts uh, on the way, but but I appreciate the way you answered that today. Well, I do agree with you because that was a very fine and solid question that deserves the attention you want to give it to it. Okay. All right, Allie, so you hear that. We're coming back to you with more later on that. Uh, it was an excellent question. So, Dad, I'm ready to go and to, to get into the topic today, which is how the 4th Allied POW Wing was created. And I, I don't know if you noticed, we haven't talked about it today, I'm wearing my POW bracelet with uh, Lieutenant Commander Richard Stratton on it uh, because uh, during this time is when all these POW bracelets and a lot of the POW MIA wives movement really got into full swing. So. Uh, I'm dressed the part today appropriately. Um, so uh, I promised everybody today we would talk about how the 4th Allied POW Wing was created, and it was really more than one event. There, there were, it was a string of events. Uh, one of the events we've already talked about quite a bit. It was in August of 1969, the Vietnamese released uh, three POWs um, for propaganda purposes. One of those POWs, Brent, uh, Douglas Brent Hegdal III, came out with 256 names. He came out uh, by a direct order from the senior officers, and he came out with a lot of details of the torture and the mistreatment. And it just so happened that on about a month after he was released, the U.S. Defense Department held a major press conference that was covered by all our news agencies across the country. This is September 2nd of 1969, and Doug Hegdahl laid out the mistreatment and the torture that had been going on over in Vietnam. That's part of it. That's part of what uh, created the change for you guys. There's also another major event that happened that same day, September 2nd, back in Hanoi, Vietnam. What else? What was the other big thing that happened on September 2nd? On September 2nd of 1969, uh, Ho Chi Minh went to his eternal reward. He kicked the bucket. And who was Ho Chi Minh? A Ho lot Chi of people will not know that. Okay, Ho Chi Minh was the president of their country at that time. He was the member of the Communist International Movement coming through France and Moscow and China into Indochina during the World War II. Actually, our American CIA at that time, OSS, saved his life in the jungles. And he led the revolution against the French colonial regime and established the country of North Vietnam. Okay, so um, 
Ho Chi Minh is a real central figure to all this. And for those of you that have not seen a picture of him before, we have a video that will be embedded in this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. So I encourage you all to go in and look at this video afterwards. It's going to have uh, pictures of a lot of the significant things that we are going to be talking about today. So when Ho Chi Minh died on September 2nd, uh, there, was a, there was a power struggle uh, after that occurred, and uh, a lot of crazy things were happening over in North Vietnam. Uh, I have um, a document here in my hand that I'm looking at now, a document uh, from their Politburo, a resolution that was published November 20th of 1969. This is a document that's now been declassified. And what this shows clearly, what they talked about after Ho Chi Minh died, they talked about how American POW should be treated. And in this document here, they clearly lay out the way uh, y'all should be treated. And um, specifically, it says uh, that you need to uh, have uh, appropriate food, clothing, and medicine, should, and that that should be maintained at current levels. So I don't know if that's a good thing or not, because the levels were pretty poor to begin with, were they not? Well, they were, but very frankly, we were being held as hostages, and hostages aren't very good unless they're alive. So they gave us enough medicine to keep us alive, and what more can you ask for? Okay. So in retrospect now, looking back on it, after Ho Chi Minh died uh, on September 2nd, did, did things noticeably change for you at that point in time? Actually, things did change, and it wasn't overnight, but there were just gradual changes, and we could not make any sense out of what happened. Uh, for example... Uh, they did start letting people write, and that document you have said that people should be allowed to write short messages. One letter a month, and, and you're correct. That's another thing it said. It's right in the Politburo resolution. It says, with regard to mail, POWs should be allowed to send one letter per month and should be allowed to receive gifts once every two months. Did that happen for no, you? No, of course it didn't happen, but at least more people got to write and more people got packages. And also they, they, they went to the extent of saying that we should be in big and airy open rooms. Yeah. Yep, it says now, that too. <laughs> now there were a few of those, and we'll talk about that later, about the big airy rooms. But unfortunately they said, well, we'll consider letting the Red Cross or some neutral agency come in and inspect the prison camps. We never did see anyone come in to inspect the prison camps except their allies, American traders, who came over to help yeah. them. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so, so there's that document there. Um, treatment starts to, to improve uh, gradually. Um, at this point in time, when all this is coming about, you are still at the plantation prison. Um, when, after this document was published, we didn't know it at the time, but after the death of Ho Chi Minh, when was the last time you were significantly tortured or, or beaten? Uh, in April of 1970, as a result of the improvement, gradual improvement of our conditions uh, where torture was not the rule of the day was the most important change. We decided that maybe Henry Kissinger and Paris had negotiated the Geneva Conventions uh, being applied to us and realized that the communists would never tell us. They would leave it up to us to figure it out. So at that time in April, I was the acting senior ranking officer our senior had been isolated once again and separated for leading. Okay. And uh, I got a hold of a piece of paper, and I wrote a, an official letter to the camp commander in the Navy format and uh, used the address of the prison camp that Doug Hegdahl had figured out, 17 Line M Day, and demanded that the Geneva Convention provisions be applied, that our senior ranking officer immediately be freed, 
and that we immediately receive uh, mail and packages and Red Cross visits. And I just filled up the page with uh, so much garbage trying to get a reaction out of them. Uh, How did they react? Well, they called me in, and uh, they always have a crutch to lean on. They had to have me disobey a camp regulation. So they ordered me to tape record a news broadcast. Of course, I refused, and uh, they beat me. Uh, we, we counted up, and there were something like 36 stripes with a, a split bamboo cane. They, and basically, caning is a form of punishment in that country. Okay. All right. And so after that, uh, and, and you were living with another POW at that point, and it was your roommate, your cellmate, that actually counted the marks on your back from that. Who, who was that POW? That was Ron Webb of the United States Air Force. Okay. And um, not long after that occurred, uh, they moved you uh, out of the plantation prison again, did they not? Within 48 hours, I was moved out. The, they could not accept the fact that someone was trying to lead a revolt on their turf. The quickest solution for them, short of shooting me, was to move me out of that camp and isolate me back in Wallo, the main prison. Yeah, so now, this is years later now, you're right back where you started. They put you back in Wallo, and you're in, in, in isolation again. Yeah, been there, done that, right. Okay, all right. So you, you were there for some time, um, and um, you did at, at some point have, have an opportunity to talk to Admiral Stocktail, who at the time was Commander Stocktail, one of the senior ranking officers there. And Admiral Stocktail uh, relayed a conver- and had a conversation with you about Major Bai, the U.S., uh, or excuse me, the uh, Army Major in the Vietnamese Army, the one that was in charge of all prisoners of war, and you all called him the CAT. Uh, The CAT told uh, Admiral Stocktail uh, that he had a new job, and can you tell me uh, how that came, came down? Well, Keg Stocktail said that he had been allowed out into the courtyard uh, to play ping pong with another prisoner. And uh, they checked out to see if there were any cameras, and there weren't, so they decided why not. And the cat came out, bumped the other guy from the end of the table, and started to play ping pong with Stockdale, and he didn't know what to make of it. And the cat started out the conversation by saying that he had a new job that he was now the camp commander of Wallow, which, of course, was a demotion, a tremendous demotion. And, in fact, uh, the cat apologized to CAG for the mistreatment. So, apparently, this was part of the cat's punishment, part of his retraining, was to go out and find the senior prisoner and apologize to him for the mistakes that he made in mishandling American prisoners. Yeah, so now th- this is all really significant because, uh, again, this is after the death of Ho Chi Minh, and now the attitude and the way that they're going to go about treating our POWs, it- it's coming down the chain of command down to those in charge of the POWs. So he had to apologize to, to Admiral Stockdale. Um, soon after that, in the spring of 1970, um, this is well documented in a lot of books, including the book written about you by Scott Blakey. A quote out of the book states that no American POW ever saw Major Bai again after the spring of 1990, or excuse me, after the spring of 1970. He simply vanished. That, and I'm here. I'm holding and looking at a picture of you and Major Bai right here. And this is another picture that will be on the video that we embed. This is the only known picture to exist of Major Bai of the North Vietnamese Army, only one that ever got out. I think this picture here was taken by the East German film crew that filmed you and Doug Hegdahl at the plantation, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. That was taken around July of uh, 1967 by the East German film crew and came out in a film called Pilots in Pajamas. Yeah. So he, he vanished and he, so that's what CAG said. That was the capped uh, CAG's recounting of the ping pong game. He said never to be seen again. 
Yeah, so that that's really interesting. Um, so so that's a, a significant thing right there. And then um, the the next thing I'd like to do is to cover the third and really impactful thing that really changed the way that you all were treated uh, and the way you all were held captive that took place in November of 1970. In November of 1970, a group of U.S. commandos led by Colonel Bull Simons um, trained and uh, conducted a raid on the Sante prison in North Vietnam. This is a uh, small POW camp outside of Hanoi. And can you tell the story of what happened and what they were and what they were not able to accomplish in that raid? Well, President Nixon uh, decided that our guys were dying uh, in prison and that he had to try to rescue some of us and demonstrate to the world that we were not being well treated, as the Vietnamese claimed, and asked the Joint Chiefs if they could figure out a way to get some of us out, and this was the result of it. They planned, over a period of time, a, a raid on Sante Prison, where they would come in with refueling aircraft, helicopters, trained special forces people, uh, an Air Force-Army combination, and that while they were coming in, there would be raids. The Navy and the Air Force would conduct raids up and down the coast of North Vietnam to distract uh, the, any potential defenses. The idea was to come in and crash one helicopter in the courtyard of the Sante Prison uh, to seize the guard towers, eliminate the guards, free the prisoners, and then take them out of the gate into a rendezvous area, mount them into the helicopters, and fly them back out of the country. And the only difficulty was about two weeks before the raid, the prisoners were moved because the river was flooding next to Sante. The cloud cover was such that our low flyers and our drones couldn't pick up the fact that there were no prisoners there. Courageously, the guys decided they wanted to go, and the president, with courage, said, give it a go and see what you can do. And if it was a raid intended to save us, it certainly did, because it scared the devil out of the Vietnamese our treatment dramatically improved after that raid, and we would not be alive today. It was akin to the bracelet that you're wearing on your arm. In the home front, Mrs. Stockdale, your mother, people galvanizing the American public to be against the Vietnamese, the very thing that they did not want. So the raid and the bracelets combined together, and there was a dramatic change in our treatment. Okay, so when they did get uh, into the Sante prison, because and, and so this uh, special forces commando team led by Colonel Simons, it, it consisted of 56 special forces soldiers, 92 airmen, and 29 aircraft, which conducted this operation. When they got into the prison at Sante, what did they find in there? There were no POWs. Were, were there anyone else in the prison that they had combat with? No, there actually was no one left in the prison, but uh, Bull Simons, the leader, uh, his aircraft uh, got disoriented. That's the pilot's talk for lost. And it landed in an area adjacent to the Sante, which was a barracks that held Chinese and Russian uh, technicians who were there to help build surface-to-air missile sites for the Vietnamese. Those people challenged Colonel Simons, who eliminated them, and then he proceeded to his original spot, uh, the inside of the prison, to discover that they had checked every cell. There was not one person left. Now, according to Ben Schemmer, uh, Lord Ress's soul, who wrote a book, The Raid, about the raid, unclassified, claims that they killed about 200 Chinese and Russian, but our government couldn't admit that they did that, because it might anger the Chinese and the Russians. Got you. So it was a very successful raid for us and for those that conducted it. Okay. And, and while this whole raid was taking place, um, you're at the Wallow Prison at this time. How far away from Sante is that? 
The estimate I saw was 15 miles. So did you hear the raid happening? No, I did not. I did not hear uh, anything. But then, remember, they had air raids going all the way from uh, Haiphong Harbor uh, down to the 17th parallel. So there were all kinds of bombs and stuff going off. We would not be able to isolate just the raid. Got you. So you did hear military action going on. Oh, absolutely. It was a grand night for military action. But you just didn't know exactly what was occurring at that time. Well, Pat, we kind of figured it out the next day because the guard uh, contingent doubled, and they were all carrying AK-47s. Wow. So we knew something had happened. Yeah. Um, How long was it after the Sante raid occurred that you found out exactly what had happened and, and, and received detailed accounting of that. Did you have to wait for new, uh, new pilots being shot down, coming into the system and communicating with them? Oh, absolutely, Pat. We had to wait for the new shoot-downs and pick up the information from them because the Vietnamese weren't going to admit to it. Although we did hear on uh, The Voice of Vietnam, uh, the broadcast uh, to American troops down south to encourage them to desert, Hanoi Hanna, uh, said that uh, L. Mendel Rivers, who was the chairman of the Armed Forces Committee, had made a statement that the United States would land the 82nd Airborne in the downtown streets of Hanoi if it felt like it. <laughs> yeah. So we, we recognized that something big had happened. Well, you know, I, I think you bring up a good point. This is uh, the Vietnamese obviously got very upset at this raid. And a, a, a member of the U, U.S. Congress stated we, we'd land the entire 82nd Airborne in downtown Hanoi if we wanted to. In retrospect, I think we probably should have done that. Uh, but what it shows clearly is when, when we're fighting the war more aggressively, um, you all are treated better um, uh, as opposed to the other way around if we're not fighting it uh, as, as aggressively in the way we uh, – the way we should have been. So I think that's a really important point. So after that, the raid on Sante, um, the Vietnamese were very unhappy. What did they do with the American prisoners that were scattered out across North Vietnam in different POW camps in small numbers? What did they do after that? Well, actually, I think they took uh, the congressman at his word and, uh, This is second-guessing them. I don't know what was behind their thought pattern, but it appeared to us that they took all of the younger, healthier men and put them up on the Chinese uh, border in an unprepared prison complex called Dirty Bird, which is a whole story in itself. But then they took us old fuds and uh, the sick and put us in downtown Hanoi and set off one half of the Wallow Prison uh, for basically housing us. So you were talking about the formation of the 4th Allied POW wing. There, geographically, they set up uh, a mini Pentagon for us. Yeah, and, and so again, uh, I'm, you're, you're back. You were in the Wallow prison already when this happened, but you were in an area of the prison in isolation and then when they started having to move everyone into the same camp uh, to consolidate you all, uh, that's when they moved you and others into a different section, which you all called eventually uh, Camp Unity, uh, which was the headquarters for the 4th Allied POW wing, correct? Correct, and one of the most spectacular errors that they made was they took all of the senior officers and all of the people who had successfully escaped from the prison, not from the country, unfortunately, all of the troublemakers, all of the known leaders, and put us all in one cell together. Yeah, and that was the next thing I was getting ready to talk about. So here, what I'm looking at here now is a diagram of the inside of uh, Camp Unity. And again, this is going to be on the video that's embedded so people can see exactly what we're talking about. We're going to show pictures 
Um, we're going to show drone pictures that were taken by surveillance drones flying over Hanoi in uh, 1970. We're going to show uh, the diagram that was drawn up uh, of how they housed you in a section of the Wallow prison that was made up of eight main buildings, warehouse-style buildings. And uh, of the eight buildings, uh, or the eight structures, you were in building number seven. And I've got a list here of the people. There is a list of 47 POWs that you were in this cell with. Uh, people, uh, people like uh, Admiral Jim Stockdale, um, uh, Jeremiah Denton, uh, John McCain, so you all are now in the same room. Uh, that's a lot of people in one place to be living. Well, we were kind of head-to-head and toe-to-toe. Uh, there really wasn't very much uh, extra space, but it appeared to be designed for uh, about 50. So I guess we were lucky to only have 47. <laughs> all right. It, it looks crowded, but, but it, it, what did all this do now to your morale after you found out about the Sante raid, what the United States had attempted to do, at least attempted to get y'all out, and it had forced the Vietnamese now to bring you all together. So now you're all living together. I, I would think that there would be strength in numbers. For How are y'all feeling at this point? Uh, I think euphoria is the single word that describes it best. Uh, it certainly made for a, an increase in hope, an increase in morale, it gave a whole new influx of uh, information because we were able to set up the school of the ship and teach each other college courses. Uh, recreational between ourselves, we made cards out of toilet paper and we could play bridge and all that kind of stupid stuff. So all across the board, our quality of life improved. Yeah. No thanks to the Vietnamese, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it seemed... Like, things started happening really fast at this point. The Sante Raid took place the night of November the 20th, and the night of November 24th, 1970, they started moving POWs into Camp Unity. So this happened very quickly. And how long after they got you all together and here into Camp Unity, how long was it before you all felt like you had a good command structure up and running? You know, Pat, uh, we always felt that we had a good command structure. Uh, from the day, in my case, from the day that Paul Colanti got a hold of me and, and touched me. But uh, you can see when you're living together with them, when you can exchange ideas, when you can rap with them, it basically seals the bond and shows you that you were not stupid, you were not alone, and that you had a chance of surviving the mess. So we were always there in appreciation of the command structure, but the possibilities, once we grouped together, just dawned on us like a new day. Yeah, um, for sure. So tell me about the significance of this. So I know there were 47 people here in building number seven, and I know you told me before that over here in the, 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 the building structure you called Rawhide, that's where they put the, th I believe it was three Air Force colonels, uh, 306s, uh, were all over here in Rawhide. But then looking at this uh, list over here of 47 names that were in Building 7, it looks like they put all the O5s and the O4s, so that's the lieutenant commanders and the commanders or, or uh, majors uh, and lieutenant colonels um, in, right here in Building 7. And, and so what was the significance of that? Why did they consolidate all those people in that area? Well, uh let me just correct a little bit. We, we had a few captains and lieutenants in there, like George Coca okay. and uh, George McKnight, who had escaped into the Red River and were awarded the Air Force and the Navy Cross for their endeavors and attempts to so escape. So they got the troublemakers. So they there, got maybe. the troublemaker, and John McCain. Now, John McCain 
from his own mouth to me personally said that he was a troublemaker. He was a born troublemaker. And he was a troublemaker for the Vietnamese, I'll guarantee you. So they, they earned their spurs into there. But the direct answer to your question is seniority. The Vietnamese recognized that uh, we really understood and meant it when we said, if I am senior, I will take charge. If I am junior, I will obey. So they scraped off all the seniors and then tried to isolate them. Okay. And so you're all here now uh, living in Camp Unity. So I, I guess there, there's certainly strength in numbers. And so you, you guys are feeling that. Um, Admiral Stockdale recognized, I, I keep referring to him as Admiral, that, that's the way I know him. But at that time, Commander Stockdale recognized that um, you all really needed a way to present unified over resistance. You did not want to go along with what the Vietnamese were doing or what they were trying to do to you. So uh, you told me a story the other day about the idea that Admiral Stockdale came up with um, for having some religious services and what effect that would have. Can you talk about that? Well, Keg Stockdale recognized that the Vietnamese communists feared religion. In fact, they wouldn't let uh, Bibles or any letter that had a Bible verse in it come into the prison uh, or into a prisoner's hands. Uh, so he decided that we ought to have a religious service every Sunday because you could hardly argue that uh, religion was a bad thing on the international scene. In fact, if you go back to that uh, Politburo list of things, we were supposed to be given access to Protestant and Catholic chaplains in that list of things. Of course, we only got that for a camera show. So he decided that was a safe thing in terms of international law to resist the enemy with. They said any grouping more than four people was uh, a sign of a mutiny of some kind and would come into the cell and break it up. So uh, he decided we would defy that and have, you know, a choir of about 10 guys and have two or three preachers and have, have a grand and glorious Sunday service. And indeed we did and had, had all kinds of sing songs and sermons and that jazz. And the Vietnamese immediately took exception to it, came in and seized uh, Robinson Reisner, who was sort of a lay chaplain anyway, and uh, Commander Gillespie and a couple of other guys hauled them out and threw them into solitary confinement, beat up a couple of the other guys, jun more junior, and slammed the doors on us, at which point our cell decided that we would end up singing in protest, and naturally we start with a national anthem. Uh, our voices certainly couldn't handle the, <laughs> the register. It was terrible. God Bless America became our theme song because we could handle that register pretty well. So we went through America the Beautiful, and we just went to songs, and then finally we got to the uh, Happy Hour Drinking songs. We ran out of voice. We ran out of songs. And then Larry Guarino, a uh, World War II veteran, as a matter of fact, yells out, this is cell number seven, number seven. This is cell number seven. Where the hell is six? And right away, the cell next to us six picked up, and they started singing, and it went right around from one cell to another to cell one. And by the time it got to cell one, we had guards in the windows with AK-47s pointed at us, and the Vietnamese labeled it as the prison riot. That, that's outstanding. And that, while you're telling that story, I'm just thinking, sitting here thinking to myself what that must have looked like. And I'm also looking at the names of the people that were in this cell. And it's incredible, the people that were in here. And, and now I know uh, why I, I recognize so many of these names and I've gotten to know them over the years. There were people in there, obviously, like Admiral James Bond Stockdale, who a tremendous man, 
Um, and when he came back from Vietnam, ended up being a vice presidential candidate with Ross Perot later. Uh, Admiral Lawrence, who you worked with, uh, you worked for him at the Naval Academy. You were his deputy for operations uh, years after the war. And uh, John McCain being in there. Can you tell everybody uh, when you and John were in that same cell together, he told you what he was going to do when he came back from Vietnam. He told you what his goal was. What, what did he tell you? We, we were sitting one time and explaining what uh, to each other, trying to explain what the experience had done to us and what it, uh, how it had adjusted our sights towards what was going to happen after we got back. And uh, like Ron Webb, uh, was convinced that he was going to go back and write the great American novel. Um, Bob Craner, that had been uh, one-on-one with John McCain for months in a, in a separate cell, he was going to become a diplomat. He wanted to go in to uh, uh, become a naval attache, pardon me, an Air Force attache, a defense attache, and get into the world of diplomacy. And it came time for John McCain, and we said, John, what are you going to do? And John says, I'm going to be the president of the United States. And we just laughed. We could hardly believe it. Well, you can imagine, we're sitting around in the, a few years back just eating our words and swallowing our laughter, but he damn near made it. He almost made it, yeah, pretty darn close. Um, so what, what was at the, end of the, at the end of this whole riot and, and the whole big thing about uh, having religious services, did, did you, were you able to negotiate at some point so you could have church services when you were all there at Camp Unity? Did they eventually allow that? Well, it was kind of funny. They went down and they decided that, uh, yes, they had to let, we didn't know about the uh, the Politburo piece of paper, but they had been told that we had to be allowed some sort of religion. But we just forced the issue and said we will have, and uh, then it became a matter of negotiating size, and CAG was wise enough, well, we'll give a little bit here and there. And they finally turned around and said, well, you can have three. Well, three is uh, unacceptable because they wanted it. And we knew that they couldn't enforce it because our people, we had some people that would play bridge, which requires four people. Uh, if the ship was sinking, you, you talk about the Titanic going down with the uh, band playing on the stern as it went underwater. Well, think of the POWs. They're playing bridge, the last four guys, as, as they sink under the water. So we managed to get one guy preaching, four guys could be singing, and that would be it for church services. So how long did they leave you? You were, you were telling me before, I can't remember exactly how long, but you were in here in building number seven for a period of time with this great cast of characters here, but they, the Vietnamese moved you out of there. How long did you stay in there, and where did they move you, and why? Well, I think the, 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 time, the timing isn't that important. What is important is who they moved. After they settled the church service uh, mutiny, they decided they were going to take all of the lieutenant colonels and commanders and put them over with the three full bull colonels over in Rawhide. And, of course, that was a terrible mistake because they just created the wing staff for the 4th POW wing. Uh, why they separated the rest of us and pulled us out and spread us around the rest of the cells I honestly don't know why I was moved. Um, I was uh, glad to meet more people. It was a great experience, but I do not know the answer to that question. Okay, gotcha. And so um, some really uh, significant events going on here now over in Vietnam for you during those times. There were some significant things happening outside of Vietnam, back at home too, so... After Doug Hegdahl was released in August of 1969 and came back and told our government about the, the terrible mistreatment uh, that uh, you had been going through, which led up to the bowing incident, after that point in time, the Vietnamese stopped allowing you to communicate with our family completely. 
We had no more letters, no word. In fact, we got no word for you for over 14 months after Doug Hegdahl was released. And eventually, um, mom got in touch with Ross Perot, a very successful U.S. businessman, great American patriot, did so much um, for so many people back in that time. Can you describe uh, what happened? Because you know the story now, and you know you know it better than me. So t- tell everybody what uh, Mom's meeting with Ross Perot was all about in December of 1970 in San Francisco. Well, Ross is on a business trip up in San Francisco and put the word out that if any of the POW war- wives in the Bay Area needed something from them, that he'd be at the St. Francis Hotel and they could stop in and speak to him. So your mother went up and uh, said that she had a problem and that the mail had been cut off. And she had been concerned that when Doug told the story of what happened to me, that they would take reprisals against me. So she was afraid that they really did me in because of Doug's uh, disclosures. And asked Ross if he would uh, contact Doug, who... Ross had sent over to Paris to harass the Vietnamese peace delegation. And, and at that point in time, the Paris peace talks are going on, correct? At, at that time, indeed. They started in, uh, in 1968. And uh, so they were still, I think, arguing about the shape of the table or something like that. Mr. Kissinger was finally getting to the point where he could get some movement out of them. So they were listening to a few people here and there. And uh, so Doug got the message, and he went in and got the ear of somebody on the Vietnamese delegation and said, basically, what the hell have you done to Stratton? Have you killed him? Because his family has not heard from him. Well, I didn't know any of this going on at the time, and I found out later on about that particular event. But one day I was called in, told to suit up with my pajamas, my striped pajamas, and go in for an interrogation. And we had been checking the area out. We knew the Vegetable Vic wasn't around. There wasn't any torture going on. And I walked in, and there was a uh, what I call a high roller. There was a guy in there that had his hair was combed and had bear grease on it, uh, cleanly shaven, tailored clothes, real live shoes, socks on even, and smoking the top of the line cigarettes. We in prison were getting the bottom of 14. <laughs> <laughs> this was the top of the long, DNBN cigarettes. And he sat down and he says, do you know Hegg? Well, I knew who you meant, but I wasn't going to admit it. And, uh, you know, who's this Hegg? And then he says to me, you know, the incredibly stupid one. <laughs> well, that was the Doug's gambit for surviving, pretend to be stupid. And I found out, I said, oh, you mean Hegdahl? He says, Hegdahl. He says, he says that we tore out your nails. You've got all your nails. I said, no, no, they didn't tear them out. They just bent them back 90 degrees. And... <laughs> Uh, it went on like that, his interrogation, and finally I rolled up my sleeves and I showed him the scars on my elbows, which at that time, uh, you can see them to this day, but at that time they were vivid red, yellow, and pus and all that kind of stuff. And I told him, I said, you know, I didn't get these marks from leaning on the bar at the QBO club. Your people did this to me. And he looked at me and said, Stratton, you are the most unfortunate of the unfortunate. And he gave me the rest of the DMBN cigarettes and walked out, and they reported back that uh, I had not been writing by my own choice. But immediately I was told that I would write a letter, and Cag Stockdale told me to go ahead and do it. Okay. What, what do you figure this guy meant by you are the most unfortunate of the unfortunate? What, what does that mean? I, I do think that the that this guy, to me, obviously was uh, a State Department weenie of some kind, and they obviously weren't into this torture for propaganda, torture for the fun of it business. I don't think any of them question torturing for the next target or military information, but to run politics based on torturing people, uh, I think, turned their stomach. This guy was visibly disturbed by the sight of the damage to my uh, elbows. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, one point I really want to get across, I want, because I, I think there's a lot of people out there that will not understand 
um, the significant contribution that Ross Perot made uh, during the Vietnam War to the POWs and to the POW families. Tremendous man. Mom was really stressed. Our whole family was stressed. We didn't hear from you for a long time. We had no idea what was going on, and we had no way to really do anything about it. But within 20 minutes of meeting Ross Perot, Ross Perot put a plan of action into motion uh, which got answers, and uh, I, I think that's really outstanding. Ross Perot uh, did uh, a number of favors for our family um, and did a number of favors for everybody in uniform, for his own people. When they were captured and held in Tehran, he went and rescued them. A great man, and we can never repay our debt to him and his family. Yeah, years later, when you all ended up coming home, uh, he hosted many reunions for you all. Uh, I actually was fortunate enough to go to one of them in Dallas, uh, where he would get all you uh, POWs together for big parties and and reunions. Just terrific man, terrific American patriot, uh, a friend to all of you uh, POWs. So, uh, people really should go back and read about the great things that, that this incredible, um, incredible American did. Um, so now we're up to about the end of 1970. You still have about another two more years to go in Hanoi. At this point in time, are you starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel yet? Are you starting to see that potentially you may go home soon? Or are, are you just totally into the dark as what's going on at that point in time? I thought that some people were going home. I was not confident that I would go home. That if I was marked and my body was marked, why would they have any reason to produce me at the end of the war? In fact, when the releases started, if you recall, I smuggled a note out with the first group, uh, basically saying goodbye to your mother, uh, written on the back of a uh, cigarette package, because I figured they'd let a couple of planes go and they'd keep the rest of us forever. Yeah, so you just didn't know. And and even that point, that was still two more years away, so you had a long way to go still. Um, But we're going to get to that next time, and and we're going to talk about... uh, additional changes in Hanoi and what's going on. We're going to talk about that on the next episode. I appreciate you doing this with me today. Uh, Appreciate you a lot, and I love you. Love you, pal. We do good work. Thanks again for listening to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Ross Perot, an American patriot that did so much for our POWs and their families. We'll never forget all that you did for the Stratton family. Thank you, and God bless you and your family. Rest in peace, sir. Don't forget, anyone can contact us with questions or feedback by emailing us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeeairpirate, all one word, at gmail.com. We appreciate all our listeners. Semper Fi. Semper Fi.